This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for June 2nd, 2021. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, looking at the COVID-19 news this week, I'm struck by a consistent story. We're continuing to learn more and more about vaccines, how well they work, how to think about how to use them, what kinds of problems might arise with them, but we're not hearing much about advances in the management of COVID-19 illness. So why do you think that is? Steve, the vaccines represented huge breakthroughs and the fantastically rapid development of vaccines is really the story of the century in terms of medicine. But the advances in treating diseases are not so dramatic. Clearly, we've gotten a lot better because it does appear that survival of patients with COVID-19, at least in this country, has improved and it's improved considerably, but it's very hard to put your finger on any single change that made the difference in improving outcomes for patients. And we've had some therapies that have some impact, but each of them individually are rather small. In addition, we've had trouble implementing some of the interventions that we do have, including vaccination, the number of vaccinated people has increased tremendously here in the U.S. and in Europe, but there's still a substantial minority of people we haven't been able to persuade to get the vaccine. And most of the world doesn't even have access to the vaccine. We know that social measures can have a big impact on transmission, masking, social distancing, quarantine and isolation, the sorts of things we've talked about before. But these have been implemented very inconsistently across and even within countries. So even in the face of a public health disaster, we're having a substantial problem with how to act on what we know. I mean, Steve, it's very challenging. Treating someone with severe COVID, intense resources, complex clinical condition, and often a nuanced outcome depending on how severely ill they were or their predisposing illnesses prior to contracting COVID and getting sick. So very important, the advances in how to treat COVID, but that's often the benefit is individual, one at a time. What we see with vaccines, and as you all know, I'm a big believer in vaccines, is that one can have a profound impact on a whole population. How do you address, for example, a car accident, head injury in a car accident? There are tremendous advances in the neurosurgical and interventions to address that. But I would argue the best way to deal with injuries from a car accident are seatbelts and airbags. So you actually never have the injury. The challenge, though, with prevention, as we all know, is it's very difficult to say thank you for a bad thing that did not happen to me. And that, I think, is a profound challenge with prevention and also prevention with vaccines, because the side effects which are real, but very rare, and often transient and quite manageable, are something we can see, but the benefits we don't see because the severity of illness with COVID does not happen. And I think we need to continue to advance education, to create trust and enable access, to fully understand and reap the benefits of our prevention modalities as Eric said, social distancing, masking, contact tracing, as well as vaccines. But I think it's a real challenge between an individual with an illness that we can treat versus a population 
for which we avoid illness altogether? And how do we as a society best understand this? And how do we properly invest to reap the best collective benefit? There's a technical issue here too, Lindsay, and that is how you develop therapies and how you develop vaccines. This is not to take away anything from the triumph of vaccination. It's so impressive. But there are a very limited number of antigens and a limited number of ways of delivering those antigens. We benefited from a lot of technical advances that had been made over the last decade or so in developing mRNA as a delivery system and developing adenovirus as a delivery system. Um, so there was a lot of work that went into this. But still, at the end, everyone ended up using the same antigen. It wouldn't necessarily have worked, but it did. For drugs, there's an almost infinite number of ways of going about making drugs. And drugs are all unique to each other. Every small molecule agent is different from every other small molecule agent. And they have their own pharmacology, very small changes in them, change the pharmacology, change the risk benefit profile for any given agent. And there are a lot more variables and it's much more difficult to move quickly to something. The demands that we made on drugs or that we'd like to have for drugs are very high bars. The drug that we really want is one that is orally bioavailable, so it can be used to treat people early on when they become symptomatic, relatively safe because you're treating a lot of people who are not that ill at that point, and effective against the early stages of disease, viral replication primarily, and we didn't have that going in. And so starting from scratch, not having an off-the-shelf drug that works like that is a huge barrier. I think that the drug development system is likely to come up with those agents, but it could very well come up with those agents after the crisis has passed completely. Couldn't agree more. I think we need to do both. There are different challenges for different types of prevention or treatment modalities. And we need to, as a society, invest in all of these different approaches. And your point's well taken that the challenges for drug development are very different than the challenges for vaccine development. And it is terrific over the last 18 months, the advances in both fronts, but they have a difference kinetic given the biology that they're up against. One last thing, again, to get at the different technical issues involved in each of these, and this is something that we've discussed before, Lindsay, the primary issue for drugs is efficacy. And that becomes more and more true as you treat sicker and sicker patients, because you can make trade-offs in terms of safety when you're treating people in the ICU. And as people are less and less ill, safety becomes more and more of an important factor. But vaccines have a huge hurdle, which is they have to be safe in people who are completely healthy. And so the safety profile is very demanding for vaccines. And again, we lucked out here to some extent because this wasn't easy to predict, but the vaccines have proven to be awfully safe. We published two studies this week about vaccines and their risks. The first is a study showing the safety and preliminary efficacy of BNT162b2, the Pfizer vaccine, in younger people. Of course, the bottom line numbers from the study were widely known. And in fact, the vaccine's already been rolled out in these younger age groups. 
What more do we learn now when we have a chance to see the primary data? Steve, the vaccine had already been authorized for people 16 or older. So this trial looked at 12 to 15 year olds. It was set up as a small phase three study that looked at both safety and efficacy. And in broad outline, it looked very much like the larger phase three trials that were performed earlier in adults. They recruited adolescents who hadn't been previously been infected with SARS-CoV-2 and who were either healthy or had stable chronic disease. Like the adult study, this trial excluded those who were receiving immunosuppressive agents or had an untreated immunosuppressive condition. They compared immunogenicity data with results from a group of 16 to 25-year-olds who were also vaccinated. And the participants were followed for both safety endpoints and the ability of the vaccine to prevent symptomatic COVID-19. The investigators randomized more than 1,100 individuals to receive either placebo or vaccine. There were about 1,100 in each arm, I should say, at the same dose as the authorized dose for adults. All of the participants were in the U.S. 86% were white and 88% were non-Hispanic or Latinx. So there was fairly limited ethnic and racial diversity. The results were basically very similar to those seen in adults. Adolescents had early vaccine reactions that were almost identical, both qualitatively and quantitatively, to those seen in young adults. Antibody responses one month after the second dose were actually higher than those seen in the young adults. And although this was a relatively small group, the vaccine efficacy looked good, depending on whether or not you included those with serologic evidence of prior infection, the investigators saw either 16 or 18 cases of COVID-19 in placebo recipients, while there were none among those receiving vaccine. In other words, although the cohort was smaller than in the adult investigations, the results appeared to be almost identical. I mean, Eric, my reaction is similar to yours in that I find it very reassuring that the data remain highly consistent across studies and across age groups. This reminds us that we need to always be performing studies and probing the data to look for reasons why it doesn't make sense or may not work or may be unsafe. It is hard to know what safety is in millions of individuals until you vaccinate millions of individuals. But when you see the safety in thousands and it looks similar, to the data and larger numbers of individuals, I find that reassuring. And then on the immunogenicity side, which is the likely mechanism of action, where we bring out an immune response against the uh, infecting virus, seeing immune responses that are consistent with older age groups that are likely protective is very reassuring that this vaccine is behaving as we would expect and want it to in yet another important age group. And so I find the data both for comparing to the older age group and then across studies to be very reassuring and encouraging. The vaccine was authorized and made available in adolescents very quickly. And the uptake rate's been reasonably high so far, but many patients may be asking their physicians if the risk benefit ratio favors vaccinating adolescents. So what do you think? It's certainly true that the risk of getting severe COVID-19 in younger people is diminished, but it's certainly also not zero. There have been serious illnesses and even deaths among younger people. In addition, people with mild disease can apparently have lingering symptoms. And of course, there are more altruistic benefits as well. While it's unclear how much virus is shed by younger people, it's also true that they have many community contacts 
and as restrictions are lifted, can be important vectors of transmission. So vaccinating this group has benefits for adolescents as individuals, their families, and their communities. And the other side is the risk of vaccination. As Lindsay just said, this study is a fairly small group, but we have lots of experience with adults where we've administered hundreds of millions of doses of vaccine. And the risks in this group of thousands look very similar to the risks in those hundreds of millions. Currently, the only vaccine available to this group is the Pfizer vaccine, the one that we were just discussing, though the mRNA-1273 vaccine, the Moderna vaccine, looks like it might not be very far behind. These two mRNA vaccines have the best safety records and likely the best efficacy records of any of the vaccines out there. So I think the data are reassuring, again, as Lindsay said, and strongly suggest that the risk benefit ratio is quite favorable. Steve, I'm going to answer your question from three different perspectives. First, as a physician, I've cared for many patients who develop severe COVID, including young patients. And though it is not common, it can be quite severe, debilitating, and even fatal. And so the potential risk of COVID, even in young folks, is quite serious. As a public health person, the amplification of the virus in different individuals, be they old or young, allows the virus to amplify, to mutate, to spread. And so the issue of not just protection for the individual, but for those around them, grandma, grandpa, those in the nursing home, other friends and family, I think it's another way for us to decrease viral replication because we have more individuals with immunologic resistance to prevent the virus from amplifying. And lastly, as a parent, I have an 11 and a 13 year old. And once this vaccine was authorized to be used in adolescence, my daughter has been vaccinated, my son will be shortly, and many of their friends are getting vaccinated as well. And I think that's really important because of the nature of schools and our ability to have schools open and kids playing with each other and interacting in ways that is really important for their health. And having more of our adolescents vaccinated will allow more interactions that will be good for health. So in fact, when do you think vaccines are going to be available for younger children? They're not yet. And that's simply because they need to be tested. Those trials are going on, testing in younger children below the age of 12. And both manufacturers I know are running trials to look at these younger kids. They're doing it in age groups, so they're moving down gradually to make sure that these are safe. It will take a little while longer to get the results of these, and I'm not sure when they'll be finished. Remember that all studies that are going on now, at least in the U.S., are in the setting of lower rates of disease. So it's going to be more difficult to measure efficacy we're probably going to be relying on safety data and immunogenicity data, measuring antibody levels and perhaps T-cell immunity in order to make the decision to go ahead with these, I suspect. I mean, Eric, the issue of efficacy, I agree, is we have smaller trials. It's harder to assess efficacy. Hopefully, from the larger trials, which obviously are more advanced in their conduct as well as demonstrating efficacy, as we've discussed before, a correlate of protection will emerge. 
And once we have a correlate of protection for a given vaccine, then immunobridging hopefully will more effectively and rapidly allow us to advance vaccines to younger age groups. The second study we published this week looks at one aspect of that vaccine safety. A group of South African investigators looked at the risk of thromboembolism in a trial of AD26-CoV-2S, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. It's a vaccine that's been associated with rare cases of thrombotic thrombocytopenia, a syndrome that's also been associated with CHADOX-1, the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine. So what did we learn in this new study? Steve, this was an effort to figure out what the rate of the development of the syndrome might be. The group followed healthcare workers who received vaccine as part of an implementation study. The study period extended from February to April, during which there were more than 280,000 workers vaccinated. As this is recommended as a single dose vaccine, there were no reported individuals who received more than one dose. The investigators used several means to capture safety data. 2% of individuals reported serious adverse events, including most commonly the development of COVID-19 disease or allergic manifestations of various kinds, although only one of those had anaphylaxis. But the interesting piece, as you suggested, is the reporting of thromboembolic events. There were five cases, all of which occurred in people with pre-existing risk factors, and none of them were associated with thrombocytopenia. So this is reassuring news, although it's a bit limited. Among a large cohort of vaccinated patients, the syndrome that's been described in some patients wasn't seen at all. This would suggest the risk is somewhere below one in 100,000 and could be considerably lower. The caveat, however, is that most cases of thrombotic thrombocytopenia have occurred in younger vaccine recipients, and we don't know the age distributions of the recipients in this study. Still, the safety margins seem to be pretty good. I think this shows how challenging it is to assess safety. I think that these investigators are doing terrific work to systematically collect data so we have a better chance to understand patterns. The syndrome that you suggest, Eric, CVST of greatest concern, appears to occur more frequently in younger age group, a little more often in women. Therefore, the ability to detect it may depend a bit on the population being studied. However, it is reassuring that it was not seen in this work. The question of other kinds of side effects, like is there an increase in thrombotic events in general not associated with the thrombocytopenic syndrome, is one that'll have to be investigated and assessed as all potential safety signals will need to be looked at and its clinical significance determined. But it's really hard to assess rare events until you have large populations studied and hopefully studied in a systematic manner. I think there's an important take-home message here, though, that these events are quite rare and much rarer than severe COVID-19 among people who are unvaccinated. So once again, the risk-benefit analysis seems to heavily favor the use of vaccines, despite the fact that this can happen occasionally. It does mean that we need to be on the lookout for these sorts of events. We do know something about how to treat them but they're not going to happen very often. So we've been talking about four vaccines. And one question that continues to be raised is whether we can compare them. Are we at a point where we can make vaccine to vaccine comparisons? 
only in a very limited way. The efficacy data from the phase three trials that are the best measure of how well these vaccines work uh, were done at different times in different places. And for the most part, that's true for the real world effectiveness results that we have. Since the circulating strains are continuing to change throughout the epidemic, and there's considerable geographic variation in how they are distributed, it can be difficult to assess how well the vaccine work, given that we know that there's variation in effectiveness with strain. Within the phase three trials that have been done, the safety looked fairly similar. Of course, in surveillance data, there are some differences. For example, the relatively rare cases of thrombotic thrombocytopenia or CVST that have been seen seem to be associated with some vaccines and not others. As we were just discussing, however, it's still difficult to get an accurate sense of the precise rates associated with this risk. Steve, it's very tempting to compare the vaccines to each other and determine which one is best. But that's very difficult to do given the data currently available. As Eric already alluded to, unbridled transmission of COVID-19, as we've witnessed in India over the last weeks, is a disaster. And vaccinating a population to stop that from happening is the priority. We have to do continued safety monitoring to determine if rare side effects exist. And that's ongoing, but it's very difficult to assess completely until hundreds of millions of people are vaccinated and systematic data are collected. We also have to continue to understand what efficacy means. As Eric suggested, the phase three trials were pretty good at giving us short-term efficacy in modest sized populations. But what does this mean for long-term immune response? What does it mean in light of emerging variants? And how well do the vaccines perform against variants over time as immunity evolves and perhaps wanes? So unfortunately, there still is much for us to learn to best decide which vaccine is best or likely no one will be best but some combination may turn out to add value. And we shall see, but it's still very early in the vaccine development and deployment for us to be in a position to know what is best. Well, let me add a, an additional comment. We do know what is best, get vaccinated. How to optimize the combination of vaccinations, we'll have to continue to generate data and learn from. We're in an unusual position in a privileged position here in the US and in Europe and in the UK, where we have multiple vaccines available. Most of the world doesn't have that luxury. In most of the world, you're lucky to be able to get any vaccine. And right now they all look pretty good, at least, and they're all better than getting COVID-19. So I completely agree with you, Lindsay. People should be getting vaccinated. That's gonna be much more important than the rather subtle differences among the different vaccines. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Lindsay.